Thank you, Dr. Winnale, and greetings, brethren, and all around the world, and welcome to our guests. It's uh, great to be back again. As uh, Dr. Winnale mentioned, two weeks ago uh, this Sabbath, we were in Springfield, Missouri, for a Tomorrow's World Bible Lecture, and uh, Mr. Byersdorfer was very surprised. We're expecting about 40 or so, and uh, when 164 came into the hall, uh, we didn't have room for them, so church members had to get up and give the guests their seat. So that was 11 o'clock in the morning, then 3 o'clock that afternoon we had Sabbath services and uh, 16 new people came uh, to that particular Sabbath service. So uh, it went very well in uh, Springfield and then Joplin the next day we had 112 and 14 came the next week to uh, Joplin Sabbath services. So it's good to be back. Uh, Mr. Ruddleston mentioned the camp out. Uh, we had 107 there last Sabbath. 39 of us here in Charlotte uh, Charlotte were there. So uh, that diminished the attendance here in Charlotte, but we had a wonderful camp out and a wonderful weekend. Parents rejoice in their children as they grow up, and especially when they express a purity of heart toward God in the Bible. Uh, little children are not yet mature, but you can see their potential. Uh, some of you are familiar with the letters from children to God. They're called Dear God Letters. And I'll read a few of those here. Dear God, I think about you sometimes even when I'm not praying. Elliot. Dear God, do you really mean do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you did, then I'm going to fix my brother. Darla. <laughs> Dear God, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. That was cool, Eugene. And then uh, Norma writes, Dear God, did you mean for the giraffe to look like that, or was it an accident? <laughs> Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy, said Joyce. <laughs> Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother, Larry. Oh, a couple more here. Dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. Brad. Dear God, I would like to live 900 years like that guy in the Bible, Chloe. Or Chris. And then uh, this is from Donna. Dear God, we read Thomas Edison made light, but in Sunday school they said you did it, so I bet he stole your idea. <laughs> and then Charles wrote, Dear God, I did not think anybody could be a better God. Well, I just want you to know that I am just saying that because you are God already. I'm not just saying that because you are God already. And then uh, finally, uh, an anonymous one, Dear God, it rained for our whole vacation, and is my father mad? He said some things about you that people are not supposed to say, but I hope you will not hurt him anyway. Your friend, but I am not going to tell you who I am. <laughs> so children have certain innocence, and yet at the same time they do express immaturity. And there is a need for all of us to mature. Some of us have matured physically, but have we matured in other ways? 
How mature are we as a church? And in what areas or dimensions of your life do you need to mature? Some of us exemplify weaknesses in our Christian character. Some of us lack people skills. And some of us must yet develop our personality. So ask yourself, how mature am I? The title of the sermon today is Spiritual Maturity. Our guide to abundant living is God's Word, and it admonishes us not to maintain the status quo. In other words, we need to grow. Let's take a look at those admonitions, Ephesians, the fourth chapter, and verse 15. Let's start with Ephesians 4 and verse 15. And certainly has to do with our communication principles as well, but I'll break in the middle of the thought here in verse 15 of Ephesians 4. But speaking the truth in love may grow up. We need to grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So our model, our example is Christ, and we need to grow up into him. How? By speaking the truth in love. So how can we establish that growth? He goes on to say, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by whatever joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. The whole church needs to mature. And we mature by loving one another, cooperating with one another, responding to one another, helping one another. Causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now we look back at verse 11, and we see the spiritual method that God gives us. Ephesians 4 Verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So it's the church has a responsibility through its ministry to help the church grow spiritually till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. Now, some have translated this to be fully mature rather than the word perfect, and other translations will take the word perfect and introduce the word mature. But to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And Mr. Meredith gave an excellent sermon, The Stature of Christ, which I hope you can sometimes review. That's in our church library. Let's turn to Second Peter, the third chapter. 2 Peter 3, and again, if God tells us to grow, we just can't stay still. We have to change. We have to develop. We have to plan to develop, as we heard in the sermonette, to prepare and to affect those plans so that they bring forth good fruit. 2 Peter 3, and we'll start in verse 17. Therefore, beloved, Since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Those false prophets and those who speak things hard to understand that they don't understand and twist to their own destruction. Verse 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. So God has given us very specific instructions and what we should do, and that is we cannot stay stagnant. We must grow. We must mature. There are different kinds of maturity. 
Of course, when we look at children, they are babies, come to childhood, then adolescence and young adults. I want to briefly describe five different types of maturity. First, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6, again a section of Scripture with which you're all familiar, but it gives us, again, that daily responsibility of which we should be aware, conscious, and alert. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, and verse 19. Of course, the context here is the sexual immorality that had been going on within the congregation. And he says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who or which is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own? So do you understand that you are not your own, that you belong to someone, that you belong to God the Father because he's purchased you by his blood? He goes on to say in verse 20, For you were bought at a price, and the greatest price that has ever been paid in the universe for anyone or anything. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your spirit is God, belongs to God. Your body belongs to God. So we need to glorify God in our bodies. Full adult humans come in all sizes and shapes. What is the smallest adult in the world? I was surprised by this. This is from the Daily Mail reporter in Britain. Uh, 14th of February, 2009. The world's shortest man, is named He Ping Ping, took Tokyo by storm when visiting the city on Friday to launch the 2009 edition of the Guinness Book of World Records. Mr. Ping Ping, who was born with a form of dwarfism and is 74.1 centimeters tall and 7 kilograms in weight, Reading the article again says he easily slipped into the shoe of the world's tallest man. He has been officially named by the book, the Guinness Book of Records, as the world's shortest man. He lives in Inner Mongolia, China, and Tokyo is just one of the many places around the world he has visited, including London and New York. Now, does this shortest man in the world have an opportunity for salvation? Yes, he does. If he, has God, if he has the human spirit, which obviously he does. Now, who is the tallest person in the world? According to the Daily Mail in Britain, quote, he has spent years shrinking away from the limelight, and at school his name was Titch because he was so tiny. But Ukrainian Leonid Stadnik has now officially become the world's tallest man at 8 feet 5 inches. I don't know if uh, the L.A. Uh, uh, basketball team has uh, recruited him or not, but uh, I think he would do pretty well. But eight feet, five inches. So let's understand, brethren, that physical maturity is something that happens to all of us. They're disabled, they're the handicapped, but they all will have an opportunity for salvation. Years ago, the um, chemical companies, I believe it was a birthed the control pill called thalidomide. And it went astray. And um, women began to have deformed uh, babies when they were born. And I remember seeing a little boy who, who instead of having arms had more or less an appendage with flippers. But the flippers had little appendages on them. And I saw him sitting 
at a piano, even though he didn't have regular arms, he was sitting at a piano and playing the piano. That boy, even though he was deformed, still has an opportunity for salvation. Every human being has that opportunity. No matter the size or the shape or the condition of every human being, if they have the spirit in man, everyone will have his or her opportunity for salvation. And the telecast, Dr. Winnell mentioned, uh, today is offering, of course, Is This the Only Day of Salvation? Uh, the title of the telecast is Heaven, Hell, and the Resurrection. And, of course, that does upset so many people that they will not accept the fact that God is fair, that he is going to give those who didn't have an opportunity for salvation time and opportunity in the white throne judgment. But as we physically mature, we have a responsibility of taking care of our bodies, and, of course, our bodies are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Dr. Meredith, of course, wrote years ago the seven laws of radiant health, and uh, some of you are still transgressing those uh, laws of radiant health. One is avoid bodily injury, and some of you uh, have not been obeying that law. Of course, we all have accidents and uh, need to be more careful. Uh, one of the major la- laws of that booklet was build a positive mental attitude. And I hope that we can all exemplify, most of you do. We just talk briefly here about physical maturity. Let's go on to a second category of maturity, and that's mental maturity. From CNNHealth.com, June 9, 2009, uh, experts reveal the best ways to save an aging brain. That includes me. 53% of people have at least a minor mental decline in their 70s and 80s. Some factors that protect against decline, exercise, education, and social connectedness. Factors that contribute to decline, hypertension, diabetes, and smoking. And I hope that you uh, can review, I'm talking to those around the world, can review the sermon, Love God with Your Mind. So we need to mature mentally. And God tells us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When He talks about that in Mark 12 and verse 30. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. We're here, 1 Corinthians 6, just over a few more pages. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 20. Here the Apostle Paul talks about a certain kind of maturity. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes. In other words, be very careful that you're not hateful, that you don't react angrily. But in understanding, be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. So he tells us to be mature in understanding. But we have to ask ourselves, do we abuse our minds in whatever way? Through alcohol, drugs, of course, in the world, uh, many are abusing their minds through witchcraft and through the occult. Dr. Meredith wrote in the Holy Days, God's Master Plan, the following, page 30, Satan the devil, the prince of this world, as Jesus called him, is working overtime to deceive humanity. Being the prince of the power of the air, Satan broadcasts, quote-unquote, just like radio and television. But he spiritually broadcasts wrong attitudes and ideas. 
You know, I don't know if any of you ever had a wrong thought or an ad, a wrong idea this past week. I did, and I recognized that's a wrong idea. It's a wrong thought. He makes mankind feel that God is either dead or that he is not real, that he is an ethereal God, a blind force way off somewhere, and always that mankind does not need to obey God's law and literally follow his ways, the Ten Commandments, and keep holy his weekly Sabbaths and annual festivals like Christ and the original apostles did do, setting us an example. But we have a battle for our mind. We have to make sure that we are on guard, that Satan doesn't control us, that we resist his temptations. We have to care for our mind. We have to develop our minds. Let's turn to Philippians, the third chapter. Galatians, I'm sorry, Philippians 3 and uh, verse 12. What kind of mind should we have if we're maturing? Philippians 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, what characteristic is the Apostle Paul talking about? He's talking about obedience, verse 8, that he is obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, and also about being a servant. He was a bond servant, made of himself of no reputation, verse 7, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. So that mindset, that attitude, is the kind of thinking that should be a part of our very character. Notice uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. Pressing toward the goal is a subhead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. <clears throat> Some of the other uh, translations have mature. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. <clears throat> In other words, I haven't got it made. You know, I have to make sure I'm monitoring myself, I'm on guard, I'm persevering. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 15. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So if you are wanting to think correctly and you start going astray, God will guide you in the right thought. You have a conscience and you have to educate that conscience. What gives you the guidelines, the basis for thinking what is right and what is wrong? We'll see later, but basically the whole Bible tells you what's right and what's wrong. So mature minds will bear the fruits of God's Spirit, and mature minds will focus on the spiritual, not on the carnal. <clears throat> so if we are to be mature, we must seek God's mind. We must all mature mentally. So let's take a look at a third area of maturity, and that's social maturity. We're told, of course, in the second great commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's turn to 1 John, the fourth chapter, 1 John 4. Our, uh, our neighbor, who uh, we uh, have hired to do our lawn 
every once in a while. Um, I, I was up preparing the sermon this, this morning and heard this uh, lawnmower, <laughs> so I had to run down and uh, remind him that uh, this was a Sabbath, and he said, oh, oh I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I mean, so we'll take care of it on Monday. So uh, anyway, we love our neighbors and uh, show them kindness and love and hopefully be a light to them, as we heard in the sermonette. But here in 1 John 4, uh, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So that social maturity that we need to strive for is based on perfect love that casts out fear. Sometimes we're nervous because someone has something against us, and we have to rise above that and love that person unconditionally, and that unconditional love can cast out that fear. And Of course, he tells us in Romans 5.5 that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given unto us. Back to uh, Philippians 2 and verse 3. How mature are you socially? Of course, some of us have not had the experience of circulating in the higher echelons of high society. Uh, Dr. Meredith's had the opportunity to be in the Queen's Garden in England, and has uh, had the my wife and I have had the opportunity of uh, meeting the Queen of uh, Thailand, uh, Queen Sirikit, and Her Majesty, and uh, other prominent people. I had to uh, got the opportunity of shaking hands with the First Lady. Uh, Mrs. Reagan, when uh, Ronald Reagan was president, when she visited the campus in Pasadena. But, you know, we don't normally celebrate those, those particular or move in those circles. Some of us do. But we need to show certain courtesies and love and respect. Philippians 2 and uh, verse 3. I've been preaching here too much. You need to turn to the Scripture. Philippians 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. How much selfish ambition has raised its ugly head in the church here in recent years. Or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. The way to start for social maturity is to honor and respect other people and realize that person, whether it's the the shortest man in the world or the tallest man in the world, that you esteem that person better than yourself. You value that person better than yourself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So mature minds will focus on the spiritual. Mature minds will show honor and love and respect and courtesy to others. Turn to Romans, the 13th chapter along that line. Romans, the 13th chapter. You know, I remember, I may have told you that story before, but uh, my freshman year I was working for the audiovisual department at uh, Ambassador College, and Mr. Herbert Armstrong uh, had these slides to show in his uh, Principles of Living class, which was basically a sex and marriage class. I uh, Humorously, I shouldn't tell on myself, but I had one slide upside down one time that was rather embarrassing. But anyway, I asked Mr. Armstrong, I said, Mr. Armstrong, uh, should I uh, present the slides this way or, or that way? He said, uh, yes, sir. Uh, 
here I am, a lowly freshman, and Mr. Armstrong called me sir. It was just really a shock, and uh, yet at the same time, you realize you're not the greatest person in the world. No one is so great that he can't show honor and respect to someone else. And so here in uh, Romans, the 13th chapter, in verse 7, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear. Yes, you need to show real deep respect towards certain individuals. Remember, uh, Peter wrote, Fear God and the King in First Peter. Honor to whom honor. So do you have that social maturity that's based on God's way of life? I've taught my students over the years, just five expressions can help you get along with almost anybody. And that's thank you, you're welcome, I'm sorry, please, and how may I help you? And just those five phrases will go a long way in helping you to get along with others. Turn to James, the first chapter, James 1 and verse 19. He says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Are you a good listener? Social maturity involves being a good listener and understanding, trying to understand the other person's point of view. Where is he or she coming from? What is the background? So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we need to grow in social maturity. And, of course, in our church bulletin today, we have the World Head Commentary by Dr. Douglas Winnale, uh, The Foundation of Friendship. And he read uh, sections of that during the announcement. So I encourage you again to read that. So a third area of maturity is social maturity. A fourth area is emotional maturity. I counseled a man one time who was having, had had problems in his marriage, He'd married at age 18. And he said, you know, I'm now age 39, and I'm now just now mature enough to be married. So some individuals mature lately. Uh, they are slow in growing in emotions. And this is what Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote about emotional maturity in the Tomorrow's World magazine, March 1971, personal from the editor. Emotional maturity. Quote, do you feel deeply about things or circumstances that are moving or important? Did you ever check your emotional responses to know whether you have attained emotional maturity and stability? Most people give little or no thought to this matter of their emotions. We humans start life as little babies. We have to grow up, but to fulfill life's real purpose and mission, we must grow up not only physically but mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. Did you ever stop to realize how many people think primarily only of attaining physical maturity? If it were not for compulsory public ed school education for children in our Western world, how many would take the initiative to develop their minds? How many in each hundred have done so in such nations as China and other countries? Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. So there is a challenge to grow up and to mature emotionally. 
the mind must control the emotions, and the mind must monitor our emotions. First Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. First Thessalonians 5, and starting with verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Well, are they controlling their emotions? Comfort the faint-hearted. So there are those who have emotional pain or are saddened, and we need to reach out for them and help them. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. And he gives us another emotion here in verse 16, rejoice always. So again, how are you doing with your emotions? Uh, Ephesians, the fifth, fourth chapter, again, exhorts us to control our emotions. I think you are familiar with Ephesians 4, verse 26. He's quoting from the scriptures, uh, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, Christ was angry. He had righteous indignation. He threw the money changers out of the temple. So there is a right kind of anger. And there's a time when people should be angry and are not. Uh, we may talk about that a little later. We'll see. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Because if you lose control of your temper, you are opening up to Satan's further exacerbation, influence, and temptation. We have to be able to control our anger. Now, what about expressing in a positive way our emotions? Let's turn to Hebrews, the fifth chapter. Hebrews 5. I may have mentioned in a uh, sermon some time ago about one minister years ago who asked the question, have you shed a tear for China? And at the time, there was starvation and uh, all kinds of oppression and privation going on. Are you concerned for the oppression and for the pain and suffering of people in other parts of the world? How did Jesus express his emotions? Ephesians, I'm sorry, Hebrews 5 and verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, talking about Melchizedek, really Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. No, Jesus cried. He cried with vehement cries and tears. I might ask, when, ask you, when was the last time you shed a tear? You may not remember. When was the last time you really had a good cry? I know one lady years ago, and I've told the story before, that she uh, didn't cry. She was dying of cancer, and she was kind of the leader of her husband. And, but just before she died, and, and uh, these ladies, 33 people, uh, helped serve this woman night and day, and Anyway, she finally called her husband over to her, to her uh, just before she died, and she would have been the one that said, uh, you know, you belong to me, buddy. That kind of an attitude apparently was uh, expressed. But when she 
had gone through the pain and suffering she did. I talked with her and I told her, you know, you, you haven't shed any tears and maybe that's one of the lessons you need to learn. And uh, anyway, she called her husband over the bedside and she said, well, put your, she put her arms around him and said, well, pull me up. And she sat up in a sitting position and she looked him in the eyes and said, I belong to you. She wouldn't have said that before. She had tears in her eyes and she had really softened. She'd really learned some deep lessons of life. She died later that evening, I remember, as I recall. But Jesus cried with great vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. When was the last time you had a good cry? I'm not asking you to cry now, please understand. But uh, think about it. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, you know, Matthew 5 and verse 4. And uh, at Sunset Beach, I was not there. Uh, Mr. Rod McNair gave a sermon on emotional leadership. Uh, that was Sunset Beach, 2008, Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, some of you may remember that sermon. But God tells us to have the fruits of the Spirit, one of which is temperance or self-control, and the other one is joy that express spiritual, I'm sorry, emotional maturity. Let's go on to a fifth category, and that is spiritual maturity. And this I hope that uh, you young people and even children can understand that you can express as children, young adults, a spiritual maturity far beyond your chronological age. Let's turn to Luke, the second chapter. Luke, the second chapter. Of course, you probably know where I'm going here, where Jesus was in the temple. His parents uh, had gone three days and finally uh, looked for him, and they finally found him in the temple. Luke 2 and verse 46. Now, so it was that after three days, the parents found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. So he was teachable. He was wanting to learn, even as a 12-year-old. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. He had spiritual understanding far beyond his chronological age. You say, well, that was Jesus. But what about you as a 12-year-old? I remember back, and I wish I remembered how old I was, but I, I think I might have been around 12 years old. And I started to question whether Jesus existed. I went to Sunday school regularly, and I said, well, I wonder if Jesus even exists. And I said, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the testimony of the gospel writers and see what they said about it. And so I just started reading in Matthew, the first chapter, and when I got up to Matthew, the fifth chapter on the Sermon on the Mount, I was amazed. I was startled at Jesus' teaching. He said, when someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. What? No, for a 12-year-old, that was revolutionary. But I accepted that and understood that that was a spiritual principle that I, as a 12-year-old, needed to apply and I needed to live by. And I think God started working with me from that time on, gradually over the years. I had many lessons, of course, to learn. Verse 47, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Verse 48, so when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? 
Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said unto them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke unto them. But notice verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. He was obedient. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Let's turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And I used to emphasize this at the SEP years ago and living youth camp because it is a wonderful principle to understand that young people and teenagers can have greater understanding and wisdom than their carnal teachers in the world. They don't have more knowledge than their science and math teachers, but they can have a spiritual perspective that their teachers in high school or middle school or elementary school do not have. And God makes that plain here in Psalm 119, starting with verse 97. And David says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You through your commandments have made, made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why did David have more understanding than all his teachers? For your testimonies are my meditation. I have more understanding than the ancients. Just think about all Socrates and Plato and all those great philosophers. Can you have more understanding than they? David said, I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I, do not, I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Again, we need to be angry at evil. And as it says, and I was going to quote that later, but Proverbs 8.13, uh, the fear of the eternal is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the froward mouth do I hate. There are some things we should hate, and that's abuse, abominations, and evil. Therefore, I hate every false way, David says. But he had more understanding than his teachers. He understood more than the ancients. So, so our young people can as well, if they are thinking about God's Ten Commandments, and they have a basis for judgment of what is right and what is wrong. Let's turn to 1 Timothy, the first chapter, 1 Timothy 1. This is one of the pastoral epistles, pastoral because Paul was writing to pastors, and Titus, of course, was one of the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 1 and uh, verse 12. Well, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in, be, in unbelief. And as I brought that out before, as I pointed out before, uh, Paul was an example of a criminal, in essence, who had persecuted the true church. And if God had mercy on him, he can have mercy on us all. 
Now, the scripture I really wanted was not chapter 1, verse 12, but chapter 4, verse 12. But you got a bonus lesson in the meantime. <laughs> chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Timothy was apparently a young evangelist. And the point, again, is, is that you can have a spiritual maturity far beyond your chronological age. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This, uh, I have a book, I didn't bring it up here, the uh, lectern with me, but How to Live 365 Days a Year uh, by Dr. John A. Schindler. He was one who introduced back in the early 60s the idea of EII, emotionally induced illness. Uh, people are sick not just because of uh, pathogens, but because of emotions. And this is what he says. He gives a definition to maturity on page 70, uh, how to live 365 days a year. Quote, maturity is just what it sounds like, the ability to react to life situations in ways that are more beneficial than the ways in which a child would react, end of quote. And of course, we saw the letters to dear God, their innocence and purity, but they do not have the experience of life to know how to react to emergency situations, although sometimes uh, little children know how to call 911 and have saved someone who's had a heart attack or had a stroke, and uh, even animals sometimes, uh, have you seen Animal Planet, are able to uh, help people. Uh, that's a different subject. But uh, this, the definition here, I think, is, is very good. Maturity is just what it sounds like, the ability to react to life situations in ways that are more beneficial than the ways in which a child would react. So we've briefly discussed five types of maturity, physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual. And now in the next hour and a half, I'm going to... Uh, start on uh, what will be the remainder of the sermon, probably go on to uh, uh, complete it uh, some other time. Seven keys to spiritual maturity. I'll probably get through uh, three of them, uh, maybe all seven, uh, depending on how you're praying in the audience. Mm. The first key to spiritual maturity is demonstrate concern beyond your own little world. Demonstrate concern beyond your own little world. Uh, we have those basic drives of self-preservation, uh, self-determination. There was at one time, I've told the story before, but uh, years ago, in the uh, library at Ambassador College in Pasadena in the lobby, was an ant farm, two panes of glass about so big, and you could see the little ants burying down, they had their little holes, and they were always working and moving a grain of sand here and a grain of sand there, and it was just very instructive to see this ant farm uh, right there that you could watch these ants work, because the, you could see the glass on both sides, just see the profile of the little ant holes and tunnels and so forth. But, you know, I started to think about that ant. You know, that ant only knew that he was in his own little tunnel. He didn't know he was in the foyer or the uh, lobby of the Ambassador Library. And he didn't know that the library 
of Ambassador College was in the city of Pasadena. And he didn't know that the city of Pasadena was in the state of California. And he didn't know that the state of California was in the United States, in the northern hemisphere, in the western hemisphere, on planet Earth, in the Milky Way galaxy. He didn't have that perspective. He was in his own little world, and sometimes human beings are that way. They're in their own little world. They're only concerned about self, 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 and they don't see the rest of the world. But God's people normally do, because oftentimes, uh, years ago, uh, my first Feast of Tabernacles, you know, I went from uh, Virginia to uh, Big Sandy, Texas, and that was the longest trip that I'd taken uh, in my life. And sometimes the Feast of Tabernacles inspires us to move beyond our own little world, and we see a different kind of world, and we get to be with God's people. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, if you'll turn there. 1 Corinthians 13. Those of us, of course, who are fulfilling the mission of the watchmen are watching, as we heard uh, Dr. Winnale mention in the announcements about uh, some of the prophetic news events taking place. We're beyond our own little world. We're concerned for the developments around the globe and other parts of the world. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, starting with verse 11. The Apostle Paul speaks of maturity. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. So how do you change from thinking as a child to thinking as a mature adult? Well, through experience, through education, through aging, and through, of course, biblical education of living God's way of life. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So demonstrate concern beyond your own little world. We have the me generation. It's my car, my house, my possession. It's my little world. You know, the first Tomorrow's World magazine cover was, um, cover magazine article was by Dr. Meredith. Seven reasons why Christ must return. And I don't know how often you pray, uh, your kingdom come. I think if you look in the newspaper and you see an example of injustice or oppression or evil, uh, I often given on involuntary prayer after I see something like that and say, your kingdom come. But have you given it any thought, really, in your prayers when you come to that part in the outline prayer, your kingdom come, why God's kingdom needs to come? I, th I hope that you'd be able to say, your kingdom needs to come to put away all the evil in the world. Your kingdom needs to come so that the dead can be resurrected. Your kingdom needs to come to put away Satan and his demons. Your kingdom needs to come to renew the face of the earth from its pollution. Your kingdom needs to come so that we can be changed from flesh to spirit at the resurrection. Your kingdom needs to come to put away false religions and false education. Your kingdom needs to come so that we can teach the world the way to peace and the way to lasting prosperity. I hope you pray that way, or you may have personal ideas and reasons to pray for Christ's return. And do we demonstrate concern beyond our own little world? First Timothy, the second chapter. First 
1 Timothy 2, as we train to become uh, kings and priests, one of the jobs or the uh, functions of a priest was to teach and educate the people. Another one was, of course, to intercede in prayer for the people. And we are in practicing, we're learning to be priests in God's kingdom by praying for others now. Of course, we have that in our weekly bulletin, prayer requests. And uh, as I've pointed out to you before, oh, I left my little week at a glance down there. I have about 70 or 80 names just in my little week at a glance in my prayer list for people who are sick or ill or who need, uh, need prayer or need God's intervention. And I don't pray for all 70 or, or 80 every day, but I do pray for quite a few of them regularly. 1 Timothy 2.1, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And so we need to pray for a governor, Governor Purdue of North Carolina. I need to pray for President Obama, Vice President Biden, uh, Secretary of State uh, Clinton, and pray for others who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, God wants us all to be concerned for others. He loves every human being. We have intercessory prayer. That means we pray for others. I'll tell you the, briefly the story. It was uh, back in Virginia uh, years ago where a church family had delivered to the house a dump truck load of gravel. And as the dump truck uh, had delivered its load, uh, dumped all the gravel into the driveway, but the bed of the truck was stuck, and uh, the truck driver couldn't get it down, and he foolishly got underneath the truck to try to uh, get it unstuck and the bed of the truck slammed down on him so that his head was stuck between the bed of the truck and the uh, truck um, cab itself and apparently the bottom of the truck was slapped down on his leg so he was in a sitting position with his head squashed between the bed of the truck and the cab of the truck and his legs under the bed of the truck. And uh, the, um, there was only a mother and a daughter there at the time, and the mother screamed and, and uh, called the emergency. And the 11-year-old daughter, who was a, you know attendee of the church, went out to the man and said, I'll pray. He said, pray for it. He was still alive. He said, you know, pray for me. The 11-year-old girl went back into the house and prayed for that man. When the emergency vehicles came, they got the, the bed of the truck up. He was flat as a pancake. Uh, the nurse gave him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. He revived and somehow came up to normal shape. I don't know how that happened. But uh, that little girl's prayer, he felt, made the difference in her life, in his life. He was saved. Just a miracle that took place. An 11-year-old girl prayed for that man. Prayers of intercession make a big difference in our lives, and it should be a part of our very character 
as a part of our learning to be kings and priests in tomorrow's world. So we need to have key number one for spiritual maturity. We need to demonstrate concern beyond our own little world. Key number two is to face reality. Let's turn to uh, Luke 21. Again, we read this quite often, but uh, it's a very important instruction by Jesus Christ himself to each of us. This is any time he speaks, we need to listen. And he says in verse 34 of Luke 21, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down in carousing, with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And, oh, we have such an information overload in this day and age. I, I handed out the cartoon just uh, last week in one of our executive luncheon meetings about uh, Dagwood and it was called Blondie, I guess, Dagwood Bumstead. And anyway, he has a little friend. I forget his name, Johnny, but Johnny's got his little tweeter. Uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. Winnell is talking about tweeting. And he has his little tweeting. He says, uh, you know, Mr. Bumstead, I, I tweet regularly and I peep. And peep means for people. And then the next scene, he says, uh, the little boy is, uh, you know, saying, you know, I don't understand how people who used to text could even, I don't understand how the, you know, peeping, uh, tweeting is, is so much faster, and yet texting, that is so archaic, that's so old and ancient now, and just, it shows you the, the speed of technology and how fast it's, uh, how fast it's moving. How do we get on that subject? <laughs> but, uh, oh yes, the cares of this world, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. As Mr. Ruddleson said in the sermonette, we do need to prepare so that we are not taken by surprise. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always. So you're praying. You're not letting a day go by without praying. You're instant in prayer that at any time during the day you can utter a silent or a vocal prayer instantly. And pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Of course, we need to pray that you can stand before the Son of Man more importantly than escaping, but God has given us that blessing and that promise both in this verse. So we need to face reality. We're, of course, facing the worst recession in 75 years, and the way we keep up with what's going on is, of course, the regular news that we get on television or on the internet or in newspapers, but I hope that you're all reading the Tomorrow's World magazine and keeping up with world trends that way, and that you're diligently, diligently watching our Tomorrow's World telecast and keeping up with world trends. Reminds me that uh, Dr. Meredith did write an article in the September-October 2005 Tomorrow's World magazine, Face Reality, and that's key number two here to spiritual maturity is facing reality. He wrote in that article, quote, and you, our readers, do not have to wait very long to see what we're talking about. No, we're talking about the greatest uh, recession in 75 years. It's just one of the major events occurring in our world. The events have been predicting for years. The, the events we have been predicting for years in the pages of this magazine are already beginning to occur and will continue to occur with increasing impact and momentum. We at Tomorrow's World can be God's watchmen for you and your loved ones if you are willing to listen. 
to study and to prove these things for yourself. These prophetic events can help us to see that God is real and that the very personal God revealed in the Bible is truly alive and is working out an awesome purpose here on earth. Once we fully grasp this fact, we can begin to face reality. Who is going to be protected from the tribulation? Turn back to Ezekiel 9.4. So we need to continually watch. I encouraged the campers up there at uh, Cherokee at our camp out uh, for individuals to maybe select one particular area of prophetic trends, whether it be uh, environment, uh, environmental deterioration, whether it be uh, disease epidemics, whether it be uh, natural disasters, and to become more of an expert and to be watching those areas. I have a friend, as I mentioned, who keeps me up to date on what's happening in the Caldera Basin in uh, Yellowstone. Of course, you know, uh, you may not know, that the Caldera Basin is the largest uh, um, crater, volcanic crater, in the United States, 60 by 40 miles. In fact, my wife and I climbed uh, Mount Washburn, which is about 11,000 feet, right in the middle of that uh, volcanic crater. And I didn't know that we were in the middle of the biggest crater in the, North America. And, of course, it, it erupts every 600,000 years. So uh, if it does erupt, which we've seen, of course, scenarios of that, National Geographic, the History Channel, uh, you know, it can happen tomorrow, uh, would destroy much of North America if that volcano erupted. And the, the, uh, my friend is keeping me uh, updated on the uh, volcanic activity and how the uh, lake level has started to rise, how there are more incidences of geysers, hot geysers coming up there in Yellowstone. So anyway, uh, I just encourage you to be uh, an expert in one area of prophetic trends. Ezekiel 9 and verse 4. Who's going to be protected from the Great Tribulation? He talked about the writer's inkhorn and that this angel, angelic being, clothed with linen and a writer's inkhorn at his side, verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said, In my hearing, go after through the city and kill do not let your eyes spare, nor have pity. In other words, God is going to spare those who sigh and cry for the abominations that are committed. And remember what Paul said in Romans 1, that, that those who not only do those abominations, but approve of them, God will judge. And we have a society that is trending towards the approval of every abomination uh, that you can think of in our society and, and trending to legalize them as well, as you know. I won't turn there. I quoted it earlier. But if we face reality, <clears throat> we need to hate evil. Proverbs 8.13, The fear of the eternal is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Coming back to... Uh, Dr. Schindler's book, How to Live 365 Days a Year in the Context of Facing Reality, page 78, Dr. Schindler writes this, Maturity is able to distinguish fact from fancy. It is characteristic of a child to accept a fancy 
as a fact and not to try to differentiate between them. A child can afford to do this almost without limit because there is usually no practical disadvantage or advantage in doing otherwise. However, if the child grows into responsible adulthood and still cannot distinguish between fancy and fact, the results are terrific, are a terrific amount of trouble that means misery and wrong emotions. So we need to distinguish between fact and fancy and face reality. That reminds me of those who are paranoid. We have people who have anxiety uh, hang-ups. <clears throat> Others uh, have uh, paranoia of some sort or another. And we need to pray for those people. And those people need to, again, repent of their paranoia and have that perfect love that casts out fear. Uh, reminds me of the joke, help, help, the paranoids are after me. You may not understand that one, but nonetheless... But one psychologist, Dr. M. Scott Peck, shared this quote concerning emotional sickness. Emotional sickness is avoiding reality at any cost. Emotional health is facing reality at any cost. And I knew as a teenager when my aunt was dying of cancer, I was somewhat close to her, and you know, it disturbed me, but I kind of put it out of my mind. I didn't want to face that reality that my aunt was dying. But somehow, I guess because I was taught to pray, I began to pray for her, and I began to face the reality of my aunt dying, and I began to have a greater love and a greater peace of mind. If we are to grow in spiritual maturity, we must learn to face reality. This is from a textbook, Childhood and Adolescence, The Psychology of the Growing Person by Stone and Church, 1968. These statements describe or refer to a mature person. An important characteristic of the individual who becomes mature is that he is at home with reality. The mature individual cannot... Um, look outer reality in the face unless he is prepared to look himself in the face too. He is at home with himself. So those are just a couple comments on facing reality. Let's look at Revelation, the first chapter, Revelation 1. And again, we had the critics who were saying, um, you know, a prediction, addiction, that uh, prophecy is uh, bad news and the gospel is good news. So, Therefore, we should uh, avoid prophecy at all costs. Well, you avoid prophecy at all costs. You disobey your Savior, Jesus Christ. And the gospel is prophetic. It's good news telling about a prophesied coming kingdom that's going to bring peace on the earth. Well, prophecy does give us warning, but it also gives us good news as well. And for those of you who are feel a little funny about prophecy, and I'm talking to our brethren around the world, if you tremble at God's word, if you want to be instructed in the truth, then you need to read Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Oh, I don't want to be shown. I want to be ignorant. No, you don't want to be ignorant. You want to face reality. To show his servants things which must shortly take place. 
And he sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, and to all things that he saw. Now, verse 3, and I hope you underline this, and I hope you get it. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. You neglect reading the book of Revelation, you are rejecting a blessing from God, and you are not facing reality. So again, we need to read the whole Bible, uh, not just the book of Revelation, but here is a special blessing that is pronounced to those who read the prophecy of this book. I won't turn there, but Jesus uh, said in John 16:33, "In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer." I have overcome the world. Key number two of spiritual maturity is face reality. And I'll give one more, um, and we'll cover the, the other ones later on. Number three is bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6 and verse 2. Galatians 6 and verse 2. Again, similar to just what I was describing about my feelings towards my aunt. You know, am I really going to uh, take upon myself her pain? Am I going to think about what she's experiencing? Or am I going to reject it? You know, those of you who've uh, had your children suffer, you know how, how you suffer when your children suffer. Galatians 6 and verse 2, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So he tells us then that we need to bear one another's burdens. In other words, we need to consider the needs, the suffering, the trials and tribulations of our brothers and sisters in Christ and perhaps our family or extended family. And he goes on to say in verse 9 of Galatians 6, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And we've had sermonettes here in Charlotte on being more hospitable, caring for the widows and showing love towards one another. So express mature emotions when you care for others and exercise compassion for them. Let's turn to uh, 1 Peter 3 and uh, verse 18. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. I had a question years ago at uh, Living Youth Camp, and we were talking about uh, character development. And uh, we talked about some of the trials and tribulation. We learn from pain. We learn from experience. And uh, one teenager asked the question in a Bible study. He said, what's the easiest way to develop character? <laughs> you know, in other words, I don't want to experience pain. I don't want to suffer at all. Well, of course, the answer to the question is you're not really going to learn too much without suffering. However... The easiest is no easy way, but the best way, of course, is seeking God daily and asking God to teach you daily. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. 
Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you do I wait all the day. Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. So you're asking God to teach you, and you're practicing the Ten Commandments. You're stepping out in faith and doing what God says. That's the easiest way to develop character. You'll still make mistakes. You'll still experience pain and suffering from time to time. And so he tells us in 1 Peter 3 and verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. We don't have time to explain that scripture. We can do that some other time. But he goes on to say here in, in verse 21, for 20, uh, For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. In other words, if you were you suffered unjustly, uh, God says, how should you take it? You take it patiently. And that's not easy to do. But he said, that's commendable. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So again, he talks about uh, taking upon himself the diseases of the world, that is, by whose stripes you were healed, the end of verse 24. But Christ learned by the things that he suffered, as it says in Hebrews 5 and verse 8. Helen Keller, who was uh, both uh, blind and uh, deaf, let's see, uh, said this, or she wrote this, communicated this, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. We've all suffered at some time or another, even as children. I got a bee sting or a wasping and then put mud on my wasp sting to try to uh, calm the pain, so forth. But we need to learn by the things that we, are, we suffer, learn from our experience. But one of the keys for spiritual maturity is that we bear one another's burdens, that we are compassionate towards our friends, and we try to understand what they are experiencing in their bodies and in their mind and in the temptations that they're experiencing. So we briefly discussed five areas of maturity. Let's turn to Colossians, the second chapter in closing. We've discussed physical, mental, social, emotional, and spiritual types of maturity. We also saw that God in heaven expects us to mature and to grow. We're not to stagnate. There are many ways of growing spiritually. We talked about three of them today. Demonstrate concern beyond your own little world. Uh, face reality and bear one another's burdens. Colossians 2 and verse 6. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Yes, you're going to mature and established in the faith, that is the body of belief, that is truth, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. 
So I hope that we are abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. How are you going to mature spiritually? By being complete in Christ, who is the head of all principality and power. It takes a lifetime to grow into the stature and maturity of Christ. But we must not stop growing. We must not stagnate. We must not turn inward and neglect the big picture and our great mission. So may we all, as we say here, as we read in Ephesians 4, verse 15, may we all grow up into him in all things till we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, brethren, let's continue to grow spiritually day by day until we are fully and spiritually mature.